First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is where we're looking this morning. And this is the classic New Testament passage on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. It's mentioned all through the Old Testament. But here Paul picks up on that Old Testament theme that's prophesying an event that is coming for us, which is the Lord's return in judgment. Follow as I read verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live for him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, I want to point out one verse that I just read as part of our intro, our entry point into this text. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that verse and the theme of the day of the Lord caused me to think a certain thought. A certain question came in my mind when I studied this text, and specifically verse 9, where it's saying God has not destined us for wrath. It's this, if God has not destined us for wrath, and we're sheltered and shielded from the day of the Lord, then why is he bringing it up? Why is he bringing it up? Now, I know it's an Old Testament theme. All themes in Scripture are worthy of our attention to think about. And we can learn about God's character for what he's going to do and how he's going to have a judgment day. But how does this apply to me in my life? That's what was going through my mind. You know, I've mentioned that studying the end times and studying future events are for the purpose of two things. They both begin with H. (laughs) One thing is we're supposed to gain a great amount of hope, understanding that the Lord's going to return to take us home. And we studied that in verses 13 through 18 in chapter 4, the resurrection, where we're resurrected with Christ and with our beloved who have gone before us. But why this kind of emphasis... In verses 1 through 11. Because the other H and the other word that we're supposed to think about when we study end times passages is holiness. But what does this have to do with our holiness? It's my question. I think a lot of times people use verses like these as kind of a scare tactic for holiness. They say, look, you know, I, I know the day of the Lord isn't specifically for you, but maybe there's going to be some sort of splash effect onto your life. And, you know, there's going to be this judgment day. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying. 
And I think maybe there's this sort of uh, teaching out there where people will say, you know, the day of the Lord's coming and I hope you're in Christ. I hope you're in because otherwise this is going to happen to you. And that's not what Paul is doing here. So what is this saying? It's saying in, 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 in essence that there are people who are safe from the day of the Lord and there are people who are unsafe. There's two kinds of people. There are people who are in the light, who are shielded from the day of the Lord, and there are people who are ignorant in darkness, who are potentially going to be judged when the Lord returns. If they don't repent, they will be. Last week we talked about catastrophes and how catastrophes make us think about the day of the Lord. They're they're not catastrophes on people in particular as much as a general judgment in our world. We talked about 9-11, we talked about the tsunamis of the Indian Ocean, we talked about Hurricane Katrina, and we talked about the recent, recent Haitian earthquake, January 12th. And how, because we live in a cursed world, these things happen, but God uses these things to make us think about a future judgment. How future judgment is going to come in a sudden way. And if you haven't yet repented, you need to repent or you're going to be in a lot of pain and suffering when the Lord does return. But as I studied this text, a thought came to me about how to make this apply. And the way to make these verses apply is to ask this question. Why am I someone who the Lord is going to shield from the day of the Lord, from judgment. It's just like with those catastrophes. You, you could say, look, you know, I'm going to point my finger at those people and say, man, why that happened to you? But instead we should say, wow, why didn't it happen to me? Why am I spared? I'm a sinner. I'm worthy of that kind of suffering. Why am I under the grace of God this time? And then as you think about the day of the Lord, that's a world cataclysmic judgment, instead of saying, wow, you know, it has nothing to do with me, and it's for those unrepentant people that are just ignorant and in darkness, we should say, but by the grace of God, I would be in darkness, and I would be unaware of the fact that the Lord's judgment is going to come like a thief in the night. Now, what happens when you begin to ask the question that way, instead of saying, why catastrophe? You say, man, why not catastrophe for me? When you change it around that way, there's joy in your life. Because you can say, wow, I am so relieved that God has graced me so that I am not going to be under this judgment. I have a promised exemption from the day of the Lord. Is that exciting? I mean, we're not exempt from cataclysmic suffering that could happen in this life, but we know one thing for certain, we will not be part of Judgment Day because we are not under wrath. We are not under condemnation. Now, if you don't think about this passage in this way, you could maybe fall into a fear-based holiness where you think, you know, I need to be concerned about the day of the Lord and so I need to keep my life right. You know, by running on a treadmill of performance and and trying to be holy in my own effort. Or, if you think about this the right way, and say, but by the grace of God, there go I, then you could think, man, I am operating under a grace-based holiness. Not a fear-based, but a grace-based holiness. That God has graced me to be holy. He is sparing me. 
And because I realize that I am spared, that makes me want to be holy all the more. Do you see what I'm saying? Let's look at this text in an outline. The day of the Lord inspires holiness in two ways. And the first way that the day of the Lord inspires holiness is found in verses 1 through 3. It's that it gives believers a sense of relief. A sense of relief. That's what he's doing in verses 1 through 3. Look at the text. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Stop there. You know, because this church was an infant church, it was made up of new believers. These believers were freaked out about the day of the Lord. Now, they were, they were made up, a church made up of Jews and some Gentile converts, some, some people who were brought into the synagogue. So they were familiar with their Old Testament. And the day of the Lord is spoken of in the Old Testament 19 times, six times by the, ma- the minor prophets, two times by the major prophets. And so as this church was reading about the day of the Lord, something was churning inside their hearts where they were getting scared that the judgment was for them somehow. Somehow they weren't going to be completely exempted from this judgment. They would read passages like Joel 2, where it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. There... Their like has never been before, nor will there ever be again after the years of all generations. Fire devours before them and behold them. A flame behind them, a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. So they're reading passages like these and they're just trying to reconcile how they are going to not be under that judgment. Timothy, who was a missionary to that church and helped found it, had gone back to that church and found out that they were in this sort of spiritual conundrum. They were, they were just puzzled in this way. And so he brought that message back to Paul, and this is what Paul wrote back to them. They were wound up. It, it reminds me of when I became a Christian at 17, and then, you know, I, when I became a Christian, I kind of thought, okay, I have a little bit to do with me coming to faith in Christ. I mean, I, you know, I believed, which we do have to believe to be saved. And, and so I was a little bit more man-centered in my conversion. But as I began to believe and understand the sovereignty of God and how God rescued me from a dead state where I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and God rescued me, and it was all up to Him to save me, that was great truth for me to think about, about how God is sovereign in my salvation and how God became bigger and larger in my mind as I thought about him and how I became more sinful as I thought about me. I mean, that was great for me to do, but it also caused me to get kind of wound up myself. And I began to, to doubt my own salvation because I saw my sinfulness and I knew it had to be all God who would save me. And so I began to say, you know, I don't know how in the world I could really be one of his after all. And I begin to doubt my salvation and spiral, spiral around in depression and, and be really concerned as to whether or not I was in the kingdom or not. I know no, none of you have ever done anything like that, but thanks for letting me emote and have my own little detox moment. 
But Paul, what he wants to do is he wants to alleviate panic for this church. This church, all of a sudden, they're a regenerate people. They've got the Spirit of God and they're reading the Old Testament now and these passages about the day of the Lord, not in an academic way, not like it's just repeated in the Jewish synagogue, but now they're reading it by faith and they're saying, this is really going to happen. So I'm getting really nervous about it, right? And Paul wants to alleviate their fears. He wants them to experience a sense of relief and joy in the fact that they are spared from judgment. That's what he's doing. And that sense of relief is a, is a prompt for holiness. That's, that's why you want to be holy. You want to be able to say, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm spared from the judgment that is to come. I have a heart for other people that are still in darkness, but thank you for sparing me, and it makes me want to live for you. That's what he's doing. You know, uh, one time I was uh, rebuked in a pretty public and severe way. It was by a surf shop owner in California. It's a Hawaiian guy. He was, uh, you know, kind of the big chief kahuna of the shop. And I went there. It was during a sort of my doctoral studies. You know, I was so so intensely immersed in my studies that on Saturday I needed to go surfing in California. So I would go to this surf shop and rent a board and, and do that. And I had my routine down. But I went one day right after a Saturday class, and uh, I was still in my sort of slacks and whatever. And uh, I needed to buy shorts, so I went in to buy a bathing suit and then rent the board. There was about ten boards in there. Anyway, I'm in the back um, trying on different trunks or whatever, and this group of people comes in. It's like a party of people. All of a sudden, they're grabbing boards, and I'm watching all of my boards leave the shop, right? I'm kind of, you know, like, man, is this going to happen for me? And so I come out, and there's one board left, you know, and it's just this boat, right? You know, just giant thing and it's it's been it's been gnawed off you know probably a shark bit into it now i mean you know it just it, it had broken apart and it had been put back together it was waterlogged and i'm just having kind of this sort of yuck moment over my time right and just kind of into me and i and so i start to complain a bit you know like well is this all you have and nah, nah, nah. and and so out comes the big kahuna and this is the rebuke and it just echoes paul's words i mean he just says look it's just surfing don't overthink it man and i, I thought Wow, you know, there's something biblical about that, you know? I, I, I don't need to be wound up and try to figure everything out and have everything nailed down exactly. I just need to just trust the fact that this is my board and that's what I have, right? And you know what? I went out and it was a heavier board and the waves were slower, so things really worked out well. But anyway, I know that's off point. But, but what Paul is saying here in these verses is... You don't need to be concerned about the times and the seasons, brothers. You have no need to have anything written to you. You don't need to have every jot and tittle laid out for you. Remember the disciples? They were with Jesus after he rose. For 40 days they were with him. And in Acts 1-7, because they were asking about the kingdom and saying, Is this now when you'll come and return in your glory? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority times and seasons it it wasn't for the disciples to know in specificity and it wasn't for this church to be aware of every little specific detail about the coming of the lord especially in terms of the day of the lord he didn't want them to be uninformed verse um, 13 of chapter 4 he didn't want them to be uninformed about the resurrection but he was more generic about the coming judgment But he did say, you're aware of something. He says, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It is going to come in an unexpected way. I grant you that. It's going to come 
and it's going to take those who are in darkness by surprise. Nothing more eerie than thinking about a thief coming into your home. You know, parents, close your young children's ears as I talk about this because it keeps kids up at night. They think about this stuff. It keeps dads up at night every now and then when you hear a foreign sound, right, down in, you know, the ice maker or your dishwasher's going. You think, man, you know, this is that. But anyway, you know, it's it's an eerie thought to think of someone coming into your house. I, I thought of a pastor friend of mine who used to pastor in South Africa and Johannesburg where crime is just you know, through the roof, and they actually use uh, a gate on their hallways to gate in the family so that your goods can be out there, and the thieves, if they're coming in, they can just have it, but you're safe. It's an eerie feeling to think about these things. But what Paul is saying is, look, you're safe. Like, the thief effect is going to happen for the unbelievers, but you're safe. You can be relieved, and others are not. Others, by contrast, are living in denial. Look at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the contrast picture here is people are going, hey, I'm doing great. You know, I'm living it up. Life's all good. Nothing's going to happen to me. It's peace and security time. And really, that's naive. Jeremiah 6.14 pointed this out. Or it says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. For people to be unaware of the day of the Lord is a darkened mindset. It's an, it's an attitude where you're just, you're just unaware of the fact. You're just oblivious to the fact that judgment is going to happen. They're going, peace, peace, when there is no peace. During this time at Thessalonica, they had what was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And Roman rule and military authority was giving a kind of superficial peace to the people in the Roman Empire. It was military domination that gave people a false sense of security from their enemies. And so they thought they were safe. But really, unless you repent, you are under the wrath of God and you're someone who is not safe either then or now, today. The only safety that we have is safety in Jesus. But since we have safety in Jesus, let me just make the point again. We should rejoice. You want to be motivated for holiness, just regather your thinking in the fact that the day of the Lord is not for you. It's not for me. That's what inspires holiness. Not fear-based holiness, grace-based holiness. You see? They won't escape, it says in verse 3. It's like the labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. What's meant here isn't the pain of labor. I won't get into that because we all know I have no idea what I'm talking about. What Paul is making the point here is that, which, you know, from an outside observer, we we can see this. Once labor begins and the contractions begin and it's really time, nothing's going to stop that process. I thought of a family member who was driving his wife to the hospital and the wife was begging the husband, please pull the car over right now. It's happening. I mean, nothing's going to stop this process. He wisely did not pull the car over. But anyway, that's beside the point. Judgment, once it begins, it will be poured out like bowls. That's the picture in Revelation, right? Bowl judgments of of wrath that are coming. Nothing's going to stop it once it begins. Well... Thinking in this way, 
thinking about the day of the Lord, it, it provides a sense of relief, but it also gives believers, secondly, verses 4 through 11, a sense of responsibility. A sense of responsibility. We're relieved that we are not going to be under judgment. But we are responsible to live out our Christian life as children of the light. We're not in the dark, and that's great. And now we've got to live it as children of the light. And that's the hard part. It's one thing to grasp I'm in the light, and I'm not going to receive judgment. It's another thing to live out your Christianity as a child of the light. And it's easy to be tempted to take for granted the fact that we are responsible to live out our Christian lives. You know, once you grasp the fact that you are saved and secure, temptations can come where you say, look, I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm not going to hell. I know the judgment isn't going to come on me, and so I can now live however I want to. And Paul is saying, no, rejoice that you're spared and now live in light of that as a child of the light. This is how knowing that judgment is coming can change your life. Martin Luther, a great reformer, theologian, and preacher and pastor, he gave a great illustration for this idea of living out your salvation. He compared before you were saved as as to being in one field with after you're saved, how you were transferred into another field, two fields. It's the field of being born under Adam and the judgment of of sin and how God transfers you from under Adam's headship headship into another field where you are under Jesus' headship. So you're removed from Adam's field or Satan's field to Jesus' field. And what he's saying is, look, once you are in Jesus' field, you know, Colossians 1 puts it this way, you're transferred or delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. Once you're there, you'll, you'll never return to the other field. You can never go back to the other field. It's impossible. It's impossible. Now, both fields are positioned right next to each other with a fence line between each one of them. And so, as a Christian, we try to live in our field and we try to live out our Christian life, but at times, we go over to the fence line. You know, we're looking at the old field. We can't go into that field anymore because we're saved and secure. But Satan comes up to the fence line and he begins to try to talk you into sinning in ways that you used to sin before you were transferred into the right field. He tries to cajole you. He tries to to talk you into thinking the wrong way like you used to think, even though you're securely in Jesus's field. I think that's Paul's point here. He's saying, look, live out your Christianity as a child of light, don't go back and live like a child of darkness that's ignorant of the coming judgment of the Lord. You see? Believers have a different calling. We have a different lifestyle. Look at verses 5 through 11. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Let's stop there. A couple of comparisons here. 
You're of the light. You're not someone who's of the darkness. You're, you're not sleeping anymore. You're awake. You're alert, right? You're, you're awakened, enlightened to really God's spiritual realities and your calling in life. You're awake to that. You're not someone who's walking around, stumbling around like a drunk person in drunkenness, but you're sober. You're, you're alert and you're aware of what's going on. He makes the contrast as well between sleeping and sobriety. Look at verses 7 and 8. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and stop there. We have different appetites as believers. We don't have an appetite anymore for the world or we shouldn't have one for the world. We have an appetite for Jesus. We want him. We want to be sober. Now, when he makes this kind of stark contrast between light and darkness and specifically between drunk people and sober people, it can sound a little bit non-applicable, right? It can sound a little bit, a little less real life because not everybody is who's a sinner, uh, someone who's not saved yet, is a drunk, right? And not everyone who is saved and regenerate is a missionary. <laughs> so he's talking in extremes. And the sins and the sin motivations that he's really unpackaging there are more subtle. You can be a Christian and be someone who gets drunk and sins in that way. That's not what he's saying. He's not just going after drunkenness here. He's talking about the sin beneath the sin. What are the root sins that drive a person to live in the dark? And what are the roots, root um, practices of righteousness and motivations of righteousness that are found in children of the light? And that's what I want to talk about a bit here to bring this closer to home. A root motivation for someone who would want to live in the dark is this. I do not want to be caught for what I am doing. I don't want to be caught. Or put it this way, I want to be um, someone who's not accountable to anybody. Does that sound more common? I mean, there are all kinds of forms and varieties and subtle ways that people live that kind of mindset out. That's a person who's in the dark. You don't have to be committing grand theft auto to be in the dark or to be someone who's hiding. There are a lot of people who are hiding from accountability, who just want their own way. And, you know, whether they cheat on things, you know, or try to, try to push the envelope, or they, don't, they don't want to be accountable. They're hiding. And that's what it means to have a mindset or an attitude where you're living in the dark. You don't have to go to the shadiest places to be an adulterer in your heart. But people who are given over to adultery, they're people who are living a life of darkness. People who aren't necessarily addicted to alcohol, but at the same time, there are people who make escape their God. You know, what is drunkenness? Drunkenness is escaping. That's a hard motivation. It's people who just say, man, I just want to check out. This world hurts, and I need an escape. And we've talked a lot about that, how people escape through the media, through pornography, through, uh, and through drugs and through alcohol abuse. A lot of people do that. Why? Because they don't have Jesus satisfying their hearts. And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, don't live that way anymore. Don't live as if you can live a life that's out of, out of control or for escape or seeking to be unaccountable. Live sober-mindedly. Live for the light. 
Jesus put it this way. He put it in terms of himself in John chapter 3. He said, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus is the light. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. People don't want to be near Jesus because it exposes what's really there. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Kind of comes down to whether or not you love Jesus. If you love Jesus and you love the light, then you're going to draw near to him. As a child of the light, you've got nothing to hide. You want Jesus' accountability. You want him to know what's going on in your life, and he already does, right? That's living in the light. Living in the darkness is someone who goes, man, I don't want anything to do with a being that knows what I really am inside. That's a person who's living in darkness. Let's bring it home a little bit more practically. Ephesians chapter 5. You might want to turn there. I'm just going to work through a little bit of Paul's thinking here. With Ephesians 5, because for the Christian, light and darkness, the battle for living in light or rebelling and living in the dark, it happens in three areas. Number one, in the church. Number two, in your family. And number three, at your job. Three areas, three sort of spheres of life. And this is where all the spiritual warfare and dynamic is happening. It's like, and you know, spiritual warfare, it really happens when you make that decision to be the missionary or go and do this or do something really radical. No, 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 no. It's, it's all in the mundane decisions. It's the dinner table moment, right? Where you either blow it or you don't. You're either light or darkness or acting like you used to act, right? It's like, man, you know what? I can't go into that field, but I'm going to just pretend a little bit, right? That's, that's what this is. That, that's where the warfare is. It's whether I'm going to have integrity at work or I'm not going to have integrity at work. Whether my heart's going to be warm towards the body of Christ and esteeming other people higher than myself or not. Light and darkness talk. He, he starts in Ephesians 5. He says, for at one time you were darkness. You were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Live it out. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He's just talking it through. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, verse 11, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Again, light living and dark living, verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Talking about probably conversion there. Salvation. Once you're saved and you're in the light, live it out. As a Christian, how do you do it? Verse 18 of chapter 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to live as a child of the light? Well, you're not living in a worldly mindset like a person who gets drunk, trying to escape accountability and escape the pain of the world, but you're living by the power and sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. And this fleshes out in three different, different spheres of life. And I, I point these out because they're so practical. First, in the church. How's your worship? Are you living out your life as a child of the light? You know, you're relieved that the judgment isn't coming. And so it's inspiring me in my worship. Well, 
Here you go, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always, and then skip down, submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. So you're, you're just exhilarated in your worship. Your, your heart is filled with gratitude. And then lastly, you address people in community and you, you submit to them and you want to know how they're doing and you're involving yourself and investing yourself with other people in the body. That's what it means to live out this walk of light. All right, in the home. Secondly, wives, submit to your own husbands. Verse 22, as to the Lord. You say, well, I don't want to submit to my husband. You know, he's mean to me. Well, <laughs> you know, or, or yeah, I submitted last week because he was being nice to me. He was a good guy, that, you know, good week. Well, this says you submit as to the Lord. A person who is enlightened sees God as the head and says, I will submit and bring myself under the authority of my husband because I'm obeying the Lord and I'm a child of the light. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, I don't want to get up and serve. I don't want to do that. I don't want to lead and think through, you know, the big picture of my household and, you know, how we're going to make ends meet. I don't want to shoulder that responsibility self-sacrificially. I don't want to do that. I just want to flip channels or whatever. I mean, right? No, no, I'm a child of the light. And so I need to self-sacrificially serve my, yeah, but I don't like my wife's personality. It doesn't matter. I'm going to self-sacrificially serve my wife, right, men? You love her. And wives, we have to love our husbands. Why? Because we are children of the light. What's so special about that? You're not going to hell. Start there. The day of the Lord isn't for me. Start there, <laughs> right? The day of the Lord, judgment's not coming on me. And so now I can live this out. I'm a child. That's what he's saying. You're, you were darkness. Now you're light. Now walk that way. That's Christianity. At church, in the home, and then at your job. Your job, I'm, I'm just going to um, make the connection from past culture to now. It's uh, working for your, your boss, who here in this situation, it was a master. And then you are an employee. And in Ephesians uh, 6, he's talking in terms of slaves. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Verse 5 of chapter 6, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now watch this. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. That's the key. People who are in the light, they obey their bosses. Why? Because of Jesus. Yeah, but my boss is mean. So what? Jesus, right? I, I, I want to serve him. And that's why I am serving my employer. That's why my attitude is going to persevere and stay good. But if you don't see Jesus as above your employer, then there are all kinds of opportunities to just get in a people-pleasing mode. There's a lot of people who sin in terms of performance. They become performance junkies or affirmation junkies, and they just want strokes, right? Affirmations. And you live in that way, and that's not good either. Instead, what you do is you serve your employer because you want to worship God in that service. And masters, in the same way, don't take advantage of those who are serving you to stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality. Why would you be kind to your employers? Because God is watching you and you want to worship and serve God with the way that you lead. You know, I think back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, that Paul is saying that we need to arm ourselves 
basically with a spiritual mindset. Just like Ephesians 5, 18, be filled in spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he's saying, put on, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Boils down the Christian life and kind of summarizes things by saying, look, it all comes back to faith, hope, and love. You believe Jesus. That's why you walk as light. You have love for people. He did this in your heart. That's, why you're, that's how you're living out your Christian life. You're loving people. And you've got hope. And you know that in the end, you're going to heaven. It's a secure hope. Now, the picture here is armament. It's where you have the breastplate over you. And it's, it's protecting and shielding your vital organs, your heart, your lungs. The helmet is on your head. It's protecting your brain. It's, these are... These are armament that would protect you in battle from death blows. And in the Christian life, if you've got faith and love and hope firing on all cylinders underneath the surface, you're ready for battle. And you can take the hits of life. And that's what he's saying. That's what it means to be a child of the light. You know that judgment isn't for you, and you also know that you got some armor that you can put on and live out the Christian life in that way. Summarizes in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Basically saying, look, we're talking about Judgment Day, but we're really talking about the gospel. (laughs) You don't get judgment, you get the gospel. You get the gospel. Verse 10, Who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we're Christians here, or whether we've already gone to be with the Lord. That's what a sleep means in this context. We might live with Him. We have the hope of being with Jesus forever. We're connected with the gospel. We live it in our minds. We're thinking about ourselves in terms of being saved, and then presently being saved, and then in the future that we're going to be saved. Salvation. We have the gospel. That's why we live this out. Now verse 18. It's our homework assignment. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. You say, well, that, you know, that sounds pretty vanilla. <laughs> well, you know what? Christianity is pretty vanilla. It's just making the right choices, pursuing the right people, showing up, having integrity, and doing it out of a gospel motivation. How do you encourage somebody? Well, you, you pull out your Blackberry or iPhone or, you know, pen and paper, whatever, and you, and you, you know... You write somebody's name down, you pray for them, you call them up, say, hey, you want to get coffee? You show up, then you look at them in the eyes and you say, hey, how are you doing? How's it going in the Lord? Just open it up, you know, just, I don't want to talk about Jesus, just say, how's Jesus in your life? You know, let's, what have you been reading in script? Well, that's an awkward moment because that person hasn't been reading. Well, you just go there and you say, well, look, here's something I've been reading. Let's, let's talk scripturally for a little bit or, or, you know, what are you struggling with? How can I pray for you? And you open up these kinds of conversations and God changes people's lives that way. Is it, you know, spectacular bells and whistles and fireworks displays of Christian life and spiritual power? No, it's just, you're just following through and you're encouraging one another and you're building people up in the gospel. Isn't it great that, you know, but by the grace of God, we would be dead in our trespasses and sins, but we're alive. Isn't it great to be alive spiritually? And then you just encourage people 
from that point. All right, let's take home a few points here. These are some of the subtle temptations that we've kind of already talked about. Number one, we can doubt our safety in the Lord. We can fall into the same temptation that this church was falling into where we're doubting our security. And we need not doubt that. We need not fall into a performance-type Christianity, a man-centered or guilt-driven Christianity. We're grace-driven. We know that we're saved, and the grace of God is what motivates us to live. We can be tempted to believe we're still under judgment, and we're not. Number two, we can digress back to unregenerate attitudes. Remember the field illustration? We can dance on the edge and begin to think, speak, and act like we used to before we were saved. We can't lose our salvation. We're not going to be put in the old field, but we can think and act like we used to. And so the answer is to, again, think gospel, past, present, and future. And that's what causes us to sober up spiritually and to think the right way. Number three, we can neglect our obligation to encourage each other in the body. Verse 11 is your ministry service opportunity. You say, man, I just don't, want to, don't know where to serve or to plug in. Well, just look around. This is your service opportunity. Don't first and foremost think in terms of programs. Think in terms of people. Opportunities will open up, and there are ways for you to serve with each other, but do it in the context of relationships. You know, one opportunity is whenever there's an event where people are coming, like the Grand Prix yesterday, or, you know, we have a Thanksgiving event or something where it's a crowd of people, don't just show up. Show up to serve and look, look for someone that you need to sit by and be with. And, and befriend. Look for someone that looks like they have no friends and, and go up next to them and, and reach out in that way. There's all kinds of ways to serve the body of Christ. So I just want to encourage you in that way with this text and let this week be the week where we are utterly relieved that the wrath of God is not for us, that we are shielded, that we are children of the light together as the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace. And we know, God, that we are protected and surrounded by your goodness. I thank you for the body of Christ. And I thank you for our opportunity to be a lighthouse in Anchorage. And I pray, God, that our ministries would be uh, worship to you. God, I pray that you would kill the ungodly motivations that we have that come into our hearts where we become those affirmation junkies. We, we prop up little idols in our hearts to worship where we want, we want to try to earn our own sanctification or we want to, to spiral down into fear and into despondency and depression because we're so focused on ourselves. I pray, God, that we would kill those idolous, idolatrous thoughts and repent. I pray, God, for anyone here who does not yet know you, Perhaps today was a wake-up call where someone was sitting here thinking, I'm in peace. I have peace when there really is no peace. Where they really are still under the wrath of God and they're faking themselves out, trying to justify their own self-righteousness when really they don't have any. So I pray that you would just wake, awaken people and let people know that they need you and draw them to yourself and I pray, God, that we as a body could pray with and rejoice over people that are coming to know you as Savior and as Lord. We thank you, God, for this morning of worship together in Jesus' name. Amen. We could stand together for our closing. I just want to, 
again say thank you for coming this morning, for gathering, for worship, and it was a joy to open God's Word to you today. And I pray that as this is the first day of the week, that your entire week would be filled with joy, would be filled with wonder in the Lord, that you would be flooded with gratitude and relief because we are no longer under condemnation. Grace and peace and have a great day in the Lord.